Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Horror is international. It always has been, from the earliest silent films like The Golem and The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, to The Babadook and Train to Busan. Outstanding original tales of terror have come from all over the world. In recent years, one of the countries that has contributed their own brutalist, no-holds-barred fright films is France. Modern French horror has even earned its own subgenre with a name and everything. New French Extremity. Though it's difficult to generalize about a single nation and its film exports, it's hard to dispute that some of the most extreme genre films in recent history have come from France. If you are familiar with movies like Calvaire, Martyrs, Frontiers, Eels, them in English, High Tension, Revenge, Raw, and the films of Gaspar Noé, then you know how hard-hitting these films can be. What is it about the Gallic cinema sensibility that leans into the explicit violence inherent in their films? The French have long been socially and artistically revolutionary, and their artists like to pop the bubbles of social graces. Is there a pent-up frustration and social fury that is invisible to the eyes of American observers? While in the United States the studios primarily aim their genre fare at a young and eager audience for date night, French horror films are decidedly aimed at adults. They are sanguinary but deeply emotional overall. They go places that not many others dare to travel. One of the most confrontational of such films was Raw, Julia de Cournot's debut feature. She immediately became a doyen of French terror. And this year, her even more powerful film, Titan, won the prestigious Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Julia is with us now to discuss her particular brand of mind-melting genre cinema after this. This episode of Postmortem is sponsored by Nightstream, a one-of-a-kind digital festival featuring the best in genre cinema. 
Taking place from October 7th to the lucky 13th, Nightstream will spotlight some of the year's most buzzed about films, have unique talks from top filmmakers in the industry, plus digital parties and special events. Viewable on your Roku, Apple TV, or web browser, this genre film festival brings leading filmmakers and emerging talent straight into your home. Some of last year's guests included John Carpenter, Nia DaCosta, Mike Flanagan, Elijah Wood, John Landis, Larry Fessenden, Barbara Crampton, Paul Shear, and of course, their humble Master of Horror honoree, yours truly, Mick Garris. For the 2021 edition, proceeds benefit the artists and filmmakers involved, as well as the National Alliance to End Homelessness and the climate change advocacy group, the Sunrise Movement. To get your badges and tickets and find out more information, head to nightstream.org and follow them on social media at nightstreamfest. Available now from Dread, Val. Finn, a wanted criminal, hides out with an escort named Val, a demon. Val offers to make his problems disappear if he follows her rules. She's been expecting him all along, and it won't be easy to escape Val's dungeon. Val is out now everywhere you buy or rent movies, and on Blu-ray November 2nd. Val. Hello, Julia. How are you? I'm Mick. I'm fine. Nice to meet you. How are you? Great. We actually met at Sitches when I was on the jury when you won the award for Raw. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Well, so, thank you for that. That was an amazing award to win. I'm very proud of it. It was a great night. Well, you are the daughter of two doctors. Is that why you think your work has perhaps why it has focused so much on imagery of the body, on body horror, that sort of thing? Yeah, probably. I'm sh- pretty sure it influenced me very much. There is this thing like when you meet other people whose parents are doctors as well, it's funny how you uh, instantly can relate to the kind of like same um, experience. Because when you when you hear about um you know, uh, patients, uh, diseases, medicine in general, um, at home, and you can hear all the doubts, all the um, all the the, the soul searching searching aspect of it as well. The fact that doctors are really pa- people who question themselves very much. It's really somehow, um, yeah, give, puts a lot of things in perspective, namely your own mortality. Obviously, um, maybe. F- you know, from an age that is younger than most people. And also, I think I was very, very much in touch with the human aspect of it that um, I was, yeah, that I was brought into actually, because my parents always told me that there was one uh, case per patient, meaning that all patients are unique, meaning that everyone uh, reacts the same uh, reacts differently uh, to uh, any uh, any disease or anything, and this is something that uh, I find like very um, yeah humanistic in its perspective very much, and that is well yeah me. your your short film Junior and Raw and Titan are all very much concerned with the body, and there's a presentation of the body. Yes, there may be a sanctity of human spirit, but the body itself is meat, and can be rent 
quite forcefully and in your imagery and the like. Um, but there's also a very high emotional content, particularly in Titan. It is very much a love story as much as it is a provocative piece of cinema. Tell me about that. Um, well, yeah, I mean, obviously for me, <clears throat> at the start, the idea was really to put like love at the center of my film. And um, for the simple reason that I had never actually um, tackled that topic before, for the reason that I thought that that, that maybe um, it was hard for me to talk about love. And thinking about that, I tried to like set myself the challenge to actually um, try to um, basically make you witness the birth of love between two people who were not determined to either meet each other or even less love each other. Two people who were kind of like on the precipice of humanity, of their own humanity, if you wish. And, and so for me, you see, when you talk about, you want to talk about the birth of a humanity through love and through unconditional, unconditional, unconditional sorry, love, the way um, I intend to um, portray it in the film, then obviously it's something that you cannot dissociate from a, a background, so the, the start of the film that is um, very violent, that is actually deprived of humanity, that is actually very violent, you know, in order to have this kind of ascend, ascending uh, arc towards unconditional love at the end. So for me, both are incredibly linked. I mean, darkness doesn't go without light and vice versa. What was it that first drew you to the cinema and made you want to make film? Um, I think my my first desire was to tell stories no matter what. I've always written a lot since I was a kid and I've always invented stories. This is like the way I express myself from the, you know, from the very start. So my parents being two cinephiles, films have had a very uh, big impact on my education. Uh, we would watch a lot of films at home when I was a kid. And, um, but, and still, I mean, I knew that I was, everything I had to do uh, with my life was writing. I wanted to write for a living. So when I heard about the film school I went to, my first um, reflex was to think I was gonna become a screenwriter. And that's actually the department that I, you know, got admitted into in the film school, screenwriting department. However, in the first year in that school, you get to, everyone gets to direct shorts, uh, no matter what department you're, you're, you're in. And the first time I directed a very short short with a very small camera that was digital at the time. And I realized that actually when you direct, um, a film, so when you choose your, cam your camera angles, when you choose the lights, you choose the costumes, you choose your actors, obviously, you direct them, and all that and so on, it's actually also telling a story. And that's all of a sudden, you know, for me, it was not like the story was not finished with the writing. It kept on going and evolving through directing, and then afterwards through editing, obviously, and post-production. So that's, that's what I discovered in first year of film school, you know, that actually for me, all this was the same gesture and it was the same way of telling the same story, going deeper and deeper every, I mean, the more you would advance in, your, in, in the production of your film. 
So I think that puts, yeah, I, it's really it struck me when I was in first year of film school. So does it give you joy to be a provocateur, to be transgressive and to watch an audience getting something that maybe they did not expect? I think uh, enjoying watching an audience getting what they did not expect has nothing to do with provocation. Um, I think provocation implies a form of gratuity, which is not what I'm aiming for. Obviously, for me, everything has sense in my film. As long as I remain um, in the realm of my character's POV constantly and that I make you feel what they feel. I think that provocation has a sense that you overindulge into something that is not necessary to your story. And that's not what I'm doing. So I don't enjoy that work particularly. Okay, fair enough. Who were your cinema heroes and what were the movies that inspired you? I mean, there's obviously a feel of David Cronenberg, um, things like Crash or Tetsuo the Iron Man uh, share some certain things. Yours go much more deeper and if I can use the word romantic, um, I think that is, is an operative word for your work as well. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, you're right about Cronenberg. I've talked about him like a lot. I, even when I was uh, when I released Raw, but um, I mean, as much as his uh, work will always be in my DNA because it has been foundational for me when I was a teenager, uh, and the way I discovered his work was very personal. So it was it's something that had a huge impact on, I think, my vision of the world and discovering my own desires for beauty and you know and um, however that he's not the only one. It's what is um, most journalists don't ask me about the other ones. So thank you for that. But there is also like, again, at the same kind of time period, um, Pasolini is uh, a director whose films I have watched um, extensively and reflected upon very much. That really, again, like uh, gave me a feeling of how free you can be as an artist and how you can challenge the form and challenge also um, um, a more political and social aspect, uh, how you can subvert expectations very much. And I think that, for example, Pasolini, um, if I have to link it to my own experience as a filmmaker, Pasolini is not really seen as um, a corpor like um, yeah, corporeal director of a director of the body, and yet I really see it in his in his filmography. I always talk about like theorem. Theorem could could feel like it's a very abstract film because you know it's really um, all about this like biblical figure entering a family and somehow swooning them one after the other. But the way he swoons them and after he leaves them and that they fall in complete despair because they need him so much, um, somehow the way this is filmed is extremely sensual, uh, which like makes it almost profane, which was pretty controversial at the time because we're talking about a form of biblical figure. But he really gives a big importance on on the bodies of his characters and the way they interact that is always through touch. There is very few words actually, and it's a lot through touch and all that. I do think that he's someone who, whose work revolved as well a lot around the, um, the corporality of his character. And that's in that way has been a very big influence to me as well. Well, you're always having a counterpoint in your films, it seems in Raw, there's a vegetarian forced to become a cannibal. 
um, in Titan, there is a woman having sex with a Cadillac and, and birthing a child, of, uh, a hybrid child of both. Tell me the things that interest you, uh, the themes that interest you when you are telling a story like this in cinematic terms, how you would approach the lighting and, the, and speak with the actors and, and just create this world of your own that only takes place on the screen and in the mind. Okay, that's a very vast question because basically <laughs> yes, my directing process is pretty hard. I mean, not that in two minutes actually, but uh, um, so you, what you're asking me is, because you asked me two questions, sorry, but it was a bit not very precise. So yeah. what you're asking me is how I direct such, a, such scenes or what are the themes that interest me in what I do? Well, let's do one at a time. What are the themes that really interest you in telling your stories? I mean, you, you do talk about this special kind of, of romance and love, and but there's a corporeal component that kind of gets in the way um, that they, creates a hurdle that must be over, overtaken. Yeah, I think like for me, the main thing, and that will probably remain the case for the following films that I will do, is that I'm really trying to gauge um what humanity is what um you know uh, somehow trying to broaden the spectrum of what it could be and and try to also um show that humanity for me uh, exists outside of representation and expectations that are link linked to any social construct i think that um gender is a social construct but you have other ones and it's really trying to have a feel of what it means really to be human and what it implies in, it implies in terms of empathy, in terms of acceptance, in terms of love, obviously. And, um, and also trying to also challenge our view on it in the sense, in the sense that um, the people I show, um, my characters, are characters that could be seen as monstrous on many levels. And yet I'm going to try to have you feel for them on different level, whether it's on your body experience, feel for their body and the violence they undergo, but also feel for their vulnerability and somehow for their craving for transformation in a way, you know? And um, I think that's, that's something that I will always, in the end, um, it's the story I will try, always try to, to tell, you know, this thing is what is it really to be human? And in that case, what does it mean also when you say that someone is monstrous, you know? For that matter, for example, like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is always a very good reference to me because um, in this novel, so the, the, cre the creature humanizes through violence. The more he's human, the more he's violent and vice versa. But this violence, of course, is looking at the creator, Victor Frankenstein's eyes. It's like he's looking at him in the eyes because, and hence the guilt of the creator as well. So there is this thing always like trying to put the monster outside and yet the monster says something about you. It says something about the person who is looking at it, you know. As far as the tools of telling a story in cinema, did you 
acquire those at, at film school at, uh, at the uh, La Fenice uh, school that you attended where you studied screenwriting? I definitely acquired some technical um, skills there for sure. But, you know, I was in the screenwriting department, which means that outside of that first year, the three years that I had left were, I was not anymore on set. I was just writing, 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 constantly writing. So basically when I started my first short after, the, after school, uh, when I did junior, I, I really like, I discovered everything of what, a, you know, the life on set is and what it is to be a director, really. Uh, mainly making all those choices because it's a lot, a lot, a lot about constantly making choices. And somehow I discovered that a big part of that job, whether you have technical skills or not, and it's good if you have technical skills, you have to have them, but you learn through time, you know, for that. But there is something that you don't quite learn is your instinct. And I do believe that this is a very instinctive job. And the way you are constantly, um, you know, um, asked to make choices between things and to give your intention and to be clear about your intention and all that is something that is for me a, a very a big part of the job to be able to, you know, um, trust your instinct very much and go for it. The second thing that I think that you can't be taught in school is the adaptability that it requires. So on a set, nothing happens the way you want to, never. You always have last minute obstacles for everything and they are more or less hard to overcome. But I think that the best thing is to be adaptable in the sense that as long as you're clear about your intentions, as long as you know what you want to tell, then you can totally like say, okay, this shot is clearly not working. I thought it would be, it would give something else, but this is not working. This is not what I want. And just start like thinking about something else right away that could actually go in your direction, in your intention and I fit better. But this is something that you have to do very quick, quick quickly, right? So it has a lot to do with instinct again. Well, there's quite a bit of a schizophrenic relationship between screenwriting and directing as someone who does both as well. Tell me which ones you are most drawn to. What you're, One is very solitary. As a screenwriter, you're very much on your own, completely on your own. The other is hugely social, where you're getting questions from every direction uh, every moment of the day. Which one do you prefer? Oh, it's a hard question. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. That's uh, I why know, I asked I, it. I think that I prefer directing. Um, for many reasons, the thinking that directing comes after writing. So writing, as you said, it's a, it's it's a, it's only loneliness. It's a lot of loneliness, a lot of suffering, a lot of uh, striving, a lot of trying, and for very very little payoff in terms of like sheer happiness or content or whatever. And so, but when you go through that, and when you're done with your script, it's it's a very important satisfaction. However, this satisfaction has absolutely no reason to be if you can't share it with your crew. So for me, like it's a, always a huge moment of relief when I have my crew and they've all read the script, and I have all these ideas and I know what I want exactly, but still I can share with everyone and the dialogue can start. So this is something that feels incredibly good after three years of loneliness. Um, and 
So that's why I think I prefer directing, but you have to understand that in my mind, it is again, very much linked. It's like, you can't, you can't, um, for me, uh, um, take this, uh, take, take one of those out of the process. For me, it's the same gesture, really. Right. Well, I know we have to wrap it up quickly, but I would love to ask you about the importance of festivals, particularly Cannes, where you won an award for Junior, your short film, another award for Raw and the Palme d'Or for Titan. Um, tell me about the importance of that festival in particular to your films reaching a wider audience than they might otherwise have. Well, it has a huge importance. It's, um, it's something that's from the get-go um, with Junior, I, uh, I hoped for, for, my, for my short and then for Raw and then for Titan, obviously. And what I hoped for was to try to bring uh, genre movies, movies to general festivals. Um, because I love genre festivals, obviously. It's always nice because when you're in genre festival, it's like, you know, everyone is speaking the same language and it's it's it feels like it's a communion right so that's it it makes you feel easy somehow but i personally wanted to see if my language could be understood by people who would not um, necessarily have necessarily have the keys of 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 it or the codes of my cinema or the codes of my references even so i think this is like it's another challenge and it's a challenge that is important for me in order to take the genre out of its niche and consider genre as being as much of a legitimate branch of cinema as the rest of, um, of the typologies of film that we know. So um, for me, it was extremely important in that direction, you know, you know, like just getting rid of the fact that getting rid of the fact that um, genre can be looked down on, you know, and that oh, it can well, be Sorry? <laughs> so well, I know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the, that's the thing. It's like, for me, it was very important that it's, you know, considered like a absolutely legitimate and a high uh, art that, um, that actually talks way more about the individuals than we think and that people assume so. And obviously of our fears, but also of love, like most of the time. I mean, I have many examples uh, in, the, in genre films like that, but so yeah, so that's why like Titan coming to competition was already for me an amazing achievement. Of course, did not expect to receive the prize of the Palme d'Or, um, but it made me very, very happy somehow that um, it is recognized that um, genre is, um, yeah, is a form of art as well, yeah. And I love that it's a brave and bold form of filmmaking that causes controversy. And controversy means you're up to something artistic. Um, I think controversy means also that, I mean, that somehow I agree with you, but um, there is this also the, the element of debate that I like. I like the fact that that films create debate, internal debates or debates between people it means that one, it creates reaction, and it 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 it's like it's a somehow are starting a, a forward movement. I think reflecting about that, disagreeing about a film, 
um, trying to understand why we disagree on things, trying to dissect the film even. And so it's, it's, it's always something as a species, as a humanity that makes us go forward. I think that arts is there to raise questions and make us go forward, not to give answers. Well, thank you so much, Julia Ducourneau, for joining us uh, on, at, on the slab at Postmortem and all the best of luck. Can't see, wait to see what you do next. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good day. Okay. You too. Take care. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.